Hi, I'm Summer. Hi, I'm Rona. Welcome to our new episode on Decolonizing the Curriculum, where we hear from Professor Leon Tickley. Leon has done some amazing work across the university regarding decolonizing educational systems, tackling systematic inequality, and supporting Black and minority ethnic learners. Um, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Um, and uh, my, my, my name is Leon Tickley. I'm a professor in education in the School of Education uh, here at the University of Bristol. Um, so I've, I basically have two, two main research interests. Uh, one is around um, race and ethnicity and education in the UK and European context. Uh, and the other is around um, education in the post-colonial world, particularly in Africa. So both of those areas of research interest touch on issues of decolonizing the curriculum um, from the point of view of the global south on the one hand, my work in Africa, and in terms of the, the former metropole, if you like, uh, here in, in the UK. Um, okay, thank you. And then our first question is, how do you understand decolonization and how do you view it as a global process per se? Mm, okay, so I think to understand it as a process is important um, because it's not something that's ever finished or complete. It's an ongoing process. Um, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's it's a... And it's also a contested process. It's a process that, you know, is, has been contested and continues to be contested. Um, I think if one looks back at the long durée, you know, over the, 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 the period of colonialism itself, one can see, you know, efforts to challenge the Eurocentric nature of the curriculum, you know, during, for example, the, the struggles against colonialism in Africa and elsewhere. Um, but also, you know, even in the period following formal independence, you know, those, those struggles have continued in the sense that, you know, curricula in Africa and elsewhere continue to be uh, heavily uh, um, shaped and influenced by the, the, the colonial period. Um, so one sees in, you know, textbooks in Africa and other parts of the world, you know, examples that, that are drawn from, from the European context. Um, and uh, still in many cases, although there have been efforts to try and make curricula more relevant to local contexts, obviously, you know, you can still see a, a very strong Eurocentric bias, uh, not just in terms of the, the examples that are used, but also, and this is the key thing about decolonization, in terms of the epistemic structure of the, the disciplines, the extent to which, you know, it's, a, it's quite a fundamental level, they continue to reflect uh, European Enlightenment ways of conceiving, of shaping, formulating uh, questions and, uh, and, 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 and ideas. So, so I think, um, you know, the, the struggle in that sense is you know, has from the outset always been global. The question of uh, the curriculum has always been a global one. Uh, formal education was introduced in many parts of the world as by missionaries. Um, 
you know, uh, out, and and you know was from its outset, from its inception, you know, Eurocentric uh, uh, endeavor, and you know that the Eurocentric nature of the curriculum is also reflected here, of course, you know, um, during, during the colonial period, um, textbooks, for example, that they used in schools were, you know, full of uh, race, race, racial stereotypes. Um, the, the curriculum reproduced um, ideas around so-called racial hierarchies, but also, you know, perpetuated uh, other kinds of cultural stereotypes around, for example, Muslims and so on. And of course, these issues weren't confined to, to, to the colonies, the way that uh, people of color were represented. They also uh, related to, 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 to the first colonies of England, if you like, to, to Ireland, to Scotland, uh, to Wales, um, you know, so, the education system here has has been complicit, you know, through the whole colonial period in uh, reproducing uh, stereotypes, colonial stereotypes, but also in putting forward a particular view of the world, understanding of uh, the nature of, of nature and of, of, of human society that is at a fundamental level uh, Eurocentric in its conception. Yeah, that's, I think that's interesting that it's like a, you know, that it is a global process and it's, it's, it's you know, it, this, I guess the colonial curriculum is not just here, it's also like in other countries and, you know, the way that history has, you know, really has, um, meant that colonial sort of stereotypes and epistemologies really become embedded in all curriculum across the world. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I guess in terms of sort of like, you know, the University of Bristol, like bringing it back to sort of the University of Bristol, in terms of like decolonizing, how would you understand decolonizing in the context of University of Bristol, do you think? Just as sort of like a quick follow-up question. Yeah, well, you know, and well, well, you might ask. I mean, it's important with all all the time to always, you know, start where you are, if you like, you know, in your own context. So, you know, um, many academics across the university, um, as well as teachers across our city, you know, educators in in the city of Bristol, the wider city, uh, and activists have been, you know campaigning, trying to, to, to draw attention to the importance of decolonizing the, the curriculum. Um, so in Bristol, there's a, um, there, there, uh, there is a, a, a grassroots uh, decolonizing movement amongst uh, staff, uh, bottom-up pressure, if you like. Um, and not just staff, students. Students, I should say, have been, you know, incredibly proactive um, within the students' union, and in particular faculties, in particular in medicine, for example, in space, you know, in in progressing a decolonizing agenda. Um, but 
in the university, there's also been, you know, top-down uh, pressure to change, which is critical because, you know, you, you in order to realise educational change in a large complex organisation such as the University of Bristol, you need both. You need, you know, a central mandate and, and pressure for change, but also that grassroots energy and, and uh, for, for, for change. Um, so both of those are important. And um, it's also, you know, critical that, that we have, that we're challenged by, you know, um, interests outside of the university. Um, the city of Bristol itself, we're blessed with having, you know, a very diverse community. And, you know, there are structures within civil society in Bristol that, that have also been very active um, in, in promoting this idea of decolonizing the curriculum. Um, in education, for example, there's the Black Southwest Teachers or the Global Majority Teachers Network, for instance, which has been, you know, really important in trying to instigate change uh, in our schools, uh, as well as in, in, in the university. So, I mean, the, the challenges are, are enormous. I mean, Bristol, like other universities, uh, you know, is, is deeply implicated at a number of levels in, in, in the colonial legacy, um, you know, from the way that our university was initially financed, funded, partly from the proceeds of slavery to the, the names of some of our buildings, the logo itself, the Bristol logo itself uh, reflects um, interests that were involved in the slave trade. Um, so, you know, at a representational level, there's a lot of work to be done. There's um, also obviously the issue of, 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 of having, you know, still a very predominantly white faculty, particularly as you go up, up the, the, the ladder, if you like, more senior levels and from the professoriate, for example, also in the senior management of the university. And I think, you know, the, to, to their credit, I think, you know, the senior management realised that there is a, uh, an anti-racist steering group that's been established uh, to look at these issues. Um, and so, and that's, that, that is encouraging, you know, you get the sense that there is a genuine commitment amongst, uh, you know, our senior management to do something about it. But of course, you know, the issues run deep. They're very challenging. Um, if you look at the disciplines, you know, Bristol prides itself on, you know, teaching a broad curriculum, but also, you know, uh, prides itself on, on the excellence of its teaching. Um, but actually, if you look at the, the content of the disciplines that are taught, uh, they still reflect in many instances, you know, the, the uh, Eurocentric bias. And you could look at for whether it's medicine, um, you know, looking at uh, the, the, the kinds of, uh, of, 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 uh, of teaching that goes on, on there, um, the kinds of things that are given attention to, the kinds of diseases that are studied, um, the way that different uh, that, that stereotypes may or may not be propagated uh, consciously or unconsciously in, in that discipline. 
But in, in, you know, in my own area, I'm a social scientist, you know, it's very clear, you know, in education, for example, which is my discipline, um, you know, ideas about education, what it means to have a good quality education, are often based on very Western ideas, you know, linked to the evolution of schooling, the universities, as they've, as they've evolved in the West, with very little attention given to, for example, indigenous knowledge systems or forms of education that take place outside of Western contexts, processes of social learning in communities. And these are critical. I mean, it's whether it's education or, or medicine, you know, being able to put Western conceptions into critical dialogue with other ways of understanding the world, you know, it's really important. Not just because it, not just because it might seem ethically a good thing to do. That's, you know, that may or may not be the case. Obviously, I, I think it is the case, but more because actually, you know, if we're thinking about turning out global citizens who understand the world, who genuinely understand the world, and are prepared to to get involved in you know, the enormous challenges facing the planet, whether it's climate change or dealing with poverty, whether realizing the sustainable development goals, whatever they might be, you know, you, you need to understand that there are different ways of approaching problems and that, you know, you can't just look through a, a narrow lens at, a, at an issue. However valuable, for example, Western science is, and it undoubtedly has made enormous strides and made really important differences to people's lives. You know, it, it's also caused problems. <clears throat> you know, whether it's climate change or pollution, or uh, you know, uh, or the uh, or the development of of uh, weapons of mass destruction. You know, science has not been neutral in that sense. Uh, hasn't been a uniform force for the good. Um, and, you know, also it's, there are other ways of knowing the natural world that uh, it's important to, to draw on and, and recognize. Um, so, for example, you know, we're running, we're, we're supporting projects at the moment in, in Africa and in India that are, are trying to deal with the impacts of climate change and the kinds of education that are needed. And actually, you know, drawing on indigenous knowledge around, for example, um, food security or, or, or uh, ways to, 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 to improve crop harvests, to irrigate the land, to fertilize the land. You know, there's a real role for, for indigenous knowledge systems that have, let's, let's face it, you know, have been around longer in many cases than, than Western science. Um, but so, so there's the kind of practical dimension to it, but there's also, you know, a cultural and ethical dimension to it as well, because it's about recognition. It's about recognizing the value of other cultures of other ways of knowing the world, of other world views. So, you know, within the social sciences, when we learn, um, history or religion or whatever it might be, it's really important that we, we're able to think critically and to, to, to balance, to arrive at a more holistic 
global understanding of the issues. And for me, that's what decolonization is fundamentally about. Um, thank you. It seems that, you know, from everything that you've mentioned, it's, it's a really broad um, ongoing process that is like very embedded in history and culture and, and so much perhaps beyond our capacity as students, for example, um, working on it within a specific amount of time. So my question is, how can, you know, what is our role and what are specific goals or responsibilities that we can tackle um, through being involved in decolonizing, for example, the University of Bristol to a certain extent? Um, because I was also present in the UNESCO chair uh, series that you talked, uh, where you spoke and you spoke about, you spoke about different um, levels of decolonization, which you've just been through. Um, so I guess what is, what is something tangible that we could do as students or as faculty members working on decolonizing? Mm, yeah, no, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, you know, I think often these debates around decolonization can very quickly become theoretical, you know, which is, is fine. We need good theory. We are in a university after all. Uh, we need to understand what we're doing, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's a question of praxis, uh, putting things into practice. And the, the great educator, Paolo Freire, uh, used that term, you know, it's that nexus between theory and practice. You can't have one without the other. You need to put things into practice to better understand what decolonization means. And it's in that process that action, which is, you know, pedagogical as well. It's about, it's a learning process. It's about how do we, as people embedded in a Western epistemic environment, you know, engage with, with these, these challenges. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's something that we all need to be concerned about. So, you know, it's, it's great that we have, you know, students, for example, at the university, as I we was saying before, who are so passionate about this uh, question, as well as you know, members of faculty. So I think there are different challenges. I think, um, you know, if one thinks about epistemic justice, what it means. So epistemic justice is a term that was coined by Spivak originally, the post-colonial critic uh, Spivak, uh, to, to talk about how, you know, uh, knowledge systems uh, through being you know, not being fully representative, also exclude, uh, also exclude. So I think there's a, a lot of work to be done in the curriculum. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do centrally, I'm part of a, a, an initiative run through the anti-racist steering group. Uh, we're trying to encourage uh, departments, faculties, to, to adopt a cross-curricular approach, to, to look at the, the curriculum and to, to, to re-evaluate it, to, to assess it in, in, in a very practical way, to, to ask, you know, well, say it's in, uh, in history, you know, whose history are we teaching? What examples are we using? What, what is the main lens that we're, we're looking at, at history through? Um, you know, and there are similar questions to ask in all the disciplines. And I think people are doing that. People are asking those questions. Um, and that's a really important work. It's hard work because, you know, it, it involves 
not just changing reading lists, that which is, you know, important, but it's not, it only touches the surface really of what we're interested in here because we're interested in a more profound transformation of the, the curriculum that, that uh, as I say, critically engages with different ways of, of understanding the world. Um, so there's the curriculum challenge. And, you know, I, I hope again that, you know, in, that the hope is that within different faculties and departments can be an inclusive process because I think it's one of those things where you have to bring people with you. Um, you know, when you're dealing with something as fundamental as, as, as this, you know, you're going, you're bound to encounter resistance. And we need to understand what that resistance is and why it is. So it might be, it might be just because people don't, don't agree with the idea of decolonizing. They might just be resistant to it for whatever reason. But, you know, in many instances, it may be due to very practical reasons. People haven't, just don't know what's involved. There aren't any materials or resources out there. So something that we're hoping that Bill can help with is to provide, you know, those resources that can, people, can assist people in this task, busy people, let's remember, you know, people who are also going through a pandemic and the other kinds of crises that the university is facing. Uh, and, and are engaged on many fronts, you know, with climate action as well as with, you know, these, these kinds of issues and challenges. So, you know, having a support structure is really important, you know, having resources that people can draw on, having case studies where people can refer to, you know, where this kind of work has gone on before, and having professional development opportunities, you know, where staff and students can, can get together to you know, really think about the, what decolonization means within a disciplinary context, their own disciplinary context. So there's that work to be done. But then, of course, you know, the other side to epistemic justice is not about just about representation, but it's also about access. Who has access to this knowledge? So, you know, I, in, in my mind, you know, um, decolonizing the curriculum is also very bound up with, you know, the widening participation agenda that we want to encourage particularly more of our, our uh, black minority ethnic learners out there, you know, to come to Bristol, you know, come and study at Bristol, our international students and, and to see you know, so, so to try and, in, and, and increase access for groups that have been historically marginalized, whether it's in the city, locally, or more globally. Um, and that, that's a real challenge, you know, how one goes about that. So things like the Black Scholarship Programme, you know, I'm very supportive of because it's a very tangible way of trying to, 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 to pursue that agenda. Um, but then I think there's also, there's also the research agenda. And again, this is something that often isn't properly addressed, I don't think, when we talk about decolonizing. People just focus on the curriculum. But if you think about it historically, you know, what is the curriculum? Where does it come from? You know, it's basically you know, a, a, a way that, that we've chosen to organize 
knowledge, evidence that ultimately, you know, is derived from research of different kinds. So the, the challenge of decolonizing research is really important. And there, you know, there, there are really exciting initiatives going on. I mean, I, I run a, a network plus it's called, uh, which is working with um, partners in Somalia, in India, in Rwanda, in South Africa, uh, where we're purposefully encouraging marginalized communities, women's cooperatives, youth groups, indigenous communities to get involved in the research process, to work with people from the universities, to work with policymakers to make a difference. So, you know, one of the projects, for example, we're evaluating at the moment is, is, uh, uh, is a proposal that we're looking at, we're hoping to fund at the moment, is from an informal settlement, a group, a, a community group based in an informal settlement in Cape Town. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've been to that part of the world. Are you Palestinian? So you would understand what I mean. So it's, you know, it's, it's people who have been dispossessed historically, people who are, uh, uh, and who are very poor. And, but they, the people who, who, you know, who have agency, who have, who have uh, you know, uh, a commitment to making their community better. And, uh, you know, they, so they, they want to work with, with the people in the university and with people from the Cape Town municipality to, to develop, to improve their, their informal settlement. And of course, education is central to that. You know, there are things that the community group need to learn, can learn from the researchers. But of course, you know, as researchers, we're often in our ivory towers, we're cut off from the realities of what it's like to live in somewhere, this, an informal settlement. So we need each other. It, that this principle of knowledge co-production becomes very important. And again, it brings us back to this idea that decolonization is, is largely a pedagogical process. It's one of, of, of learning, being prepared to learn, open your eyes and ears. So, you know, I would see those three dimensions as being interrelated, decolonizing the curriculum, democratizing the university through widening participation, diversifying the faculty, listening to our students, listening to our staff, listening to our communities outside of the university and our partners in the global south. And, and, and thirdly, um, you know, decolonizing research being prepared to work with different groups, people, individuals, rather than on them, which has been the colonial model, the extractivist colonial approach to research. Um, I, I wanna ask more about that. So in terms of what you mentioned, how it's obviously, um, there's so many processes involved, but also it seems to be very uh, social and environmental as well. Um, so I think a lot of the times we focus on decolonizing the curriculum, as you said, in terms of um, specific ways of teaching and learning, whereas also decolonizing means um, how students interact with one another, how many students are being able to join the university, how faculty are represented among different groups. Um, and I think 
a big thing as well is I feel like we're talking about decolonization, it's easy to think of it as something that's a process that we're doing as a result of something that, that has happened in the past. Um, but my question is, how does how do current um, events, such as, for example, Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, just ongoing injustices happening in the world, manifestations of colonization that still exist, how do we manage and, and go forth in decolonizing when we're still surrounded by manifestation of ongoing colonization. Um, and also, I guess more about how it's integrated into the social and learning environments, um, perhaps more as alongside um, studying and curriculums. Mm. No, those are, those are excellent questions. So, you know, I mean, there are different schools of thought, of course, you know, um, so, I mean, some people might take a pessimistic view. They might say, well, you know, given the fact that we, we have, you know, centuries of, uh, of uh, you know, of uh, colonialism and the colonial experience, the colonial legacy to engage with, um, given that we're living in, you know, uh, a, a very, uh, uh, capitalist society where you know knowledge itself has become a commodity where research itself has become a commodity you know rather than something that's for the public good given that um, you know we're living still in a in societies that are structured through patriarchy you know what what hope is there you know don't we have to first overthrow the whole system of racial capitalism, colonialism, of patriarchy, before we can make progress. I don't, I don't, I understand that view, but I don't share it. I think it's a pessimistic view. I think that it's, um, it's also a view that, you know, downplays the important gains that have been made, you know, by uh, people who at the, the sharp end, at the receiving end of colonialism, patriarchy, of, of a, a, a very class-based society, who have really struggled to make a difference, you know, in, through forms of popular struggle. But also, you know, as, as Gramsci puts it, you know, the war of manoeuvre in the, the battle in the trenches, you know, of civil society, of our institutions, to understand that Yes, they are structured in racism, in sexism, in classism, but you know they're also contested spaces. I mean, look at the work you two are doing. You know, I'd like to think that that will, whatever small way, make a difference. Um, and because what what we're what we're trying to do here is, you know, uh, really develop. The next generation of, of learners, you know, of, of, who, who can go out there into the world and, and carry on with the struggle, you know. And I think there are real instances where you've seen, I mean, my own background is in the South African struggle. And, you know, there was really important that, you know, um, the ANC had a school in Tanzania when, when it was in exile. Um, where you know they, they tried to develop the next cadre of leaders in South Africa. 
um, you know, um, if if you if you look at uh, at uh, you know at, at uh, you know other other examples, I mean that you know thinking about the Palestinian case, for instance, you know uh, the role of social movements in trying to generate uh, change, you know, against awful odds, you know, um, in a you know a, appalling really challenging circumstances that I don't just give up and wait for, you know, um, um, the kind of Zionism that we see in Israel to disappear. You know, they, they carry on working in their communities, um, building social learning, solving problem community problems, mobilizing the community around, around issues, uh, things that can help and make a difference you don't just give up. You have to. You have to carry on, and you know. But I, th I actually think that at Bristol we're well positioned to do that, because it is, you know, ironically, an elite university. So we're producing the leaders of tomorrow. You know, if we can, if we can create a situation where the leaders of tomorrow, you know, are exposed to a wider range of understandings of the world, opinions, cultures, cultures, beliefs, value systems. For me, that can only be a, a good thing. So, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm a, a foolish, but I remain very optimistic. No, I think, I think it's good. It's, it's optimism, but it's also grounded in, in very practicality, isn't it? And I think it's, it's good to sort of inspire yeah, like hope and, and motivation and, and enthusiasm, I think, um, which is really good. Well, that was a brilliant discussion. How would you reflect, Rona? Yeah, that was a really interesting discussion. I thought I learned so much from it. And I think what really stood out to me was this idea that decolonizing is such a, a global process. And I think the work that we are doing is part of this global process. And I think a lot of the time you can sort of focus on the smaller aspects to it, for example, like certain weeks, certain modules, certain units, which is obviously really important. But I think it's also important to understand that fighting epistemological privilege is a global process. And I think it's really important to reflect on that and reflect the historic aspect of it as well. And I think that's really important. And um, what about you? What did you sort of find interesting and what's about to you? Yeah, I completely agree. I think the interview speaks for itself. Um, there's so much to learn from Professor Leon. I really appreciate how he conveys the large scope and the depth of decolonization as a movement and as a subject. Um, but he also highlighted the role, ability and duty on everyone to contribute, to make change, to speak up and take action, which is really empowering and significant. We hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. Thank you for listening. Thank you.